My guest today is a unique rugby legend. John Robbie has the distinction of playing rugby for Ireland, the Lions and the Springboks. In 1981, he went on an Irish rugby tour of South Africa and basically never came home. But what started off as a life of rugby gave way to a life as a radio broadcaster, challenging the establishment and giving a voice to the previously voiceless. His radio show on 702 was even credited in the book Invictus as having played its part in the dismantling of apartheid in South Africa. A few weeks ago, I spoke to John Robbie via telephone from his home in Johannesburg. Now, the quality of the phone line is not always perfect, but hopefully it doesn't get in the way of your enjoyment of what is a fascinating story. John Robbie. John, you are very, very welcome to my podcast. I'm highly honoured to be honest, Gary. Great chatting to you. Let's rewind back to the beginning, if we may. You, you are now, as most people will know, a and have been for a long time a big star in South Africa. But you came uh, not from South Africa, but from Greystones. Isn't that right? That's right, Greystones. I wasn't quite born and bred, uh, but I moved there when I was a very, very uh, young, a young guy and lived you know, my early life there. Absolutely loved it. I mean, it's still one of the, the most beautiful places in the world, and, and, and I love it very dearly. And what was your kind of uh, upbringing like? I mean, you obviously played a lot of rugby, a lot of sports and so on. You look back and you try not the, you know, to put a sort of romantic tinge on it, but but it was pretty ideal, idyllic, I should say. Uh, I mean, I came from a very very happy family. I, 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 uh, two, two, I have two brothers, and I had a sister who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. So there were four kids: uh, mum and dad. My dad was Scottish. My mother was Welsh. I don't have a drop of Irish blood in me. And uh, we lived in, we lived in Greystones, and my my granddad who was Welsh. And my, my uh, grandmother came over and lived with us when he retired. He was a teacher. And that's really where I got my love of, of rugby. John, you went to the high school in Rathgar. You played rugby at Scrum Half. And you won the Senior Cup in 1973. Yeah, that's that's uh, Senior Cup win. I mean, I look back on it now. You know, it's, what is it, maybe, I suppose, maybe 50 years ago. Crazy, 45 years mm. ago, something like that. And, and, and it was amazing. And, of course... Ian Burns, the late Ian Burns, who was at school, was this a prodigy. He was just absolutely brilliant. He was fly half and I was scrum half. And out of the blue, you know, high school, little old high school, one of the only time ever. And we had half acts called Robbie and Burns. And I'll never forget that awful headline in the newspaper the day after that said, uh, 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 Robbie Burns, Poetry in Motion. You know, which is... You wrote their copy for them, John. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> and, and uh, it, it, you know, it was absolutely fabulous. But we had a wonderful team and a wonderful pack of guys. And, and funnily enough, Ian and I always spoke about the fact that we were... We were, you know, we were, we were key players, but, but, but there were other guys on that team who sort of never got a mention. I think of, you know, the Don Lewis, the captain, and Peter Galt, and Cocky Wright, in particular, Charlie Galloway, the hooker, Hugh Andrews. These were great, great rugby players, schoolboy rugby players. You know, we had a very, very good side, and yet all people wanted to hear about was, was Robbie Burns. So we all felt a little bit guilty about that, but uh, having said that, the early publicity was terrific in, in launching, I suppose, my, my rugby career. And you must have known then that you were good pretty young. I mean, you must have been been pretty dynamic if you managed to win the Senior Cup, you know, and wrestle it from, from the big boys, the Belvedere's, Black Rock, all of this, you know. 
you must have had a real sense of yourself young. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was it was it was um, a passion. It was always my passion. I, I think bordering on fanaticism. I mean, I literally couldn't talk about. You, you know, I remember. I remember once my my brother Dave always joking at me that he'd be watching the cricket, uh, and England were playing Sunbury, and, and Tony Gregg was bowling. You know, and I was watching a cricket test match, and and I said, my God, he'd make a great number eight. You, you know, I, I couldn't see anything other than in terms of, of, of rugby. And I was an absolute, absolute fanatic. Now, you said uh, that you, you kind of breathed rugby and rugby was very much your life. Uh, and you won the Senior Cup in 73 with high school. But within, like, less than three years, you were playing for Ireland. You made your debut uh, against Australia in January 76 with Ollie Campbell. Uh, absolutely. Can you believe Ollie, Ollie and I made our, made our debuts on the, on, the, on the very same day? It was 20, 21, I was... 20 years and three months. And what do you remember of the game? I remember the game being, I mean, obviously the excitement was, was amazing. And, and, you know, Australia weren't, weren't a great side. And funnily enough, people said, how are you picking this youngster who's, you know, probably in the schoolboy school gate of Lansdowne Road? Because I believe it or not, I was a very useful looking, looking guy. And people sort of thought I was 15 rather than, than, than uh, 20. And funnily enough, when we went to New Zealand, just a little aside, the newspaper said, isn't it amazing, the kind of the New Zealand Union to allow their Irish coach to bring his son along on the tour. They didn't realize I was a player. They thought I was the Irish coach's son who was along to watch, you know. <laughs> um, but, but, but uh, yeah, yeah, so it was very, very exciting. And, and Australia weren't a great side. And they sort of said, uh, the answer was, they said, oh, it's only Australia. So we're giving John Robbie a chance. He's one for the future. If it was Wales or France or New Zealand, of course, we wouldn't play. And that'll show you what people thought of Australia in those days. But of course, we were the last game of a long tour, tours that went on for months. So at the time they played us, Australia had a very, very good side, uh, you know, very well oiled and fit side. And, and we played and, and um, we were well, 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 well on top of them. We scored a good try. And, and then Ollie Campbell amazingly missed a number of kicks, I think three or four kicks a goal, and then the penalty about 40 metres out, halfway out on the right, and Mike Gibson was the captain, he said, here, John, have a go, and threw me the ball. So here my first international, getting over my nerves, and suddenly I'm faced with this horrible kick, you know, sort of halfway out to the right, 40 metres, the one everyone says you should get, but it's so easy to miss, but luckily I kicked the goal and, and kicked another penalty, and we lost, I think, 20 points to 10, which was disappointing, but you know, I was an international. I could, I, I suppose, I could die happy. Yeah, I can remember. I've got goosebumps even talking about it. Wow! Wow! The, the, the excitement, the excitement of, that. of that, getting your getting first, first cup. A lot of people, you know, you know listen to this, would be, 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 be fanatics and so on, and everyone would have dreamed of playing for Ireland at some point. But to actually do it, do it. I mean, it must be kind of extraordinary excitement. Yeah, it's funny because I had undoubtedly the most unsuccessful uh, international career with Ireland. I played nine games and lost all nine, you know, and, and, and uh, it, it, it's a bit like Doug Sanders and that putt. Somebody says, do you still think about it, Doug? And he says, no. He says, sometimes 15 minutes goes by and I don't think about it. And a bit like that, thinking, I have just won one. And I was ahead in most of the games. We were only hammered once in all that time. Um, but I had a spectacularly uh, unsuccessful career in Ireland and, and it's always funny because people used to come up to me and they used to say and it used to irritate me used to say how many games did you win for Ireland you know? and then after a while I got a great answer because I used to say to them how many did you 
and that shut them up. Ah, very, very good. good. So you were a British and Irish line within four years of your uh, debut. John, what was your uh, trip to South Africa like in 1980? What was your impression? And joined as a temporary replacement, and Terry Holmes got injured, and uh, again on his debut, uh, on his comeback game, and so I stayed the whole tour and ended up playing in the final test where we beat the Springboks at Loftus in front of 70,000 people, and it was just absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. So, in a, in a funny way, like I had a dreadful Irish career, uh, uh, for the Lions, my tour of the Lions was magnificent, and I think I, I think it was the only player who played in a test match who didn't lose a single game uh, on tour, and, and it remains rugby-wise uh, an incredible memory. 1980, can you believe it? Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again, and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Coming soon on the Senior Times, it's Rugby Legends. Join Gary Cook as he meets some of Ireland's greatest ever players. Listen on as the legendary Willie John McBride recounts tales of the 1974 Lions Tour to South Africa and the now infamous 99 call. Ollie Campbell recalls ousting Tony Ward from the Irish team and how it was bigger news than the Pope's visit. Former Irish and spring boxer legend John Robbie tells us why he was wrong to go to South Africa and find out what it's really like to be facing down the giants of international rugby with Mick Galway, Mick Quinn and Hugo McNeil. That's Rugby Legends, coming soon on the Senior Times. Then in 1981, you went again with the Irish team to, to South Africa and obviously that was a big to-do because there was a lot of controversy, as you well remember. How did you feel about uh, about going and so on? Uh, it's, it's, still, it's still an issue. Almost, almost, I think, you know, you talk about a session. And mates of mine, like, you know, Donald Spring, Hugh Roman, Neil, Ollie Campbell, who know that this is a, a, a huge um, stain, really, on my life. And they sort of say to me, for God's sake, John, get over it. Move on, move on, you know, you You've atoned for that, some of the work you've done in South Africa, particularly on radio. You've atoned for it, move on. But, but, but you, you know, when you look back, and I suppose the older you get, God, I'm 65 now, can you believe it? Uh, you know, you look back on things you really regret. And, and I have this great dilemma because, on a rugby sense, touring South Africa is, I mean, it was the greatest experience ever. You know, it was the nearest thing that we got as amateur players to being professionals. We were treated ridiculously well. You know, he used to joke that if you went to South Africa, if you went to New Zealand, it was normally raining and you're normally staying in some small town hotel and all the people wanted to do for rugby. When you went to South Africa, you stayed in magnificent hotels, the weather was fantastic. If you woke up in the morning and said, I want to go up in a helicopter, someone would organize it. If you want to say, I want to play golf with a pro golfer, somebody would organize it. 
So it was the, the greatest place to tour. And and uh, I, I sort of had a dilemma about it, but but in the end, and I, I wavered, and, and, you know, some people say I talked myself out of the Irish captaincy that year, because as I said, I'm captain of a very successful, I was captain of a very successful Leinster side. And, and I did an interview, and I said, I still haven't made my mind up about South Africa. This is when the, the country was split right down the middle. I mean, it really was a major, major issue. And uh, I was working for Guinnesses as a graduate trainee. And, and um, in the end, I suppose rugby was always going to win. As I said, I was a, I was a fanatical rugby player. And I went on the tour. And then in, in contrast to the Lions tour, I actually got a virus in my, in my shoulder, a bizarre sort of injury. I lost the use of my arm. I had a shocking tour. I only played a couple of games. Uh, and never free fit, and, and, and that was it. And I'd lost my job, and then, then uh, got off the job while I was in South Africa. Uh, you know, the, the, the people who'd lost their jobs, I mean, it was crazy. You'd arrive at a hotel, and, and there'd be envelopes full of money for you. People would say, thank you for, for, for coming. You know, you lost your job. Here's his uh, contribution, which was, was very, very nice, and, you know, pocketed the money, feeling mildly guilty in the, in the amateur days. And, and yeah, that was it. So, so but in a, in a bizarre way, so I, I feel very, very conflicted about it, looking back on it now. And, and particularly when I got involved, more politically involved, and particularly when I was involved with the radio. And, you know, I'd be interviewing some, some ANC minister or something who'd be in exile or on the run or in prison. And, and then you'd realize this guy was in prison when I was touring with the Lions or with, with Ireland. And I, I must confess, I did feel a little bit, a little bit ashamed. But, uh, you know, as they say, the dogs bark and the caravan moves on. So we've got to, we've got to live with it and move on. But still, still talking to you now, Gary, brings back very, very mixed emotions. Let me put it that way. Now, can I ask you, John, once you were in South Africa and you were playing rugby for the Transvaal and you were a big success, I mean, what was life like for you at that point? in what you describe, I think, pretty much as, as, as a rugby bubble uh, and, and you weren't particularly concerned at that point or weren't thinking so much about the issue, the bigger issues of apartheid. What was it like for you in South Africa for the first few years that you were there? Well, it was, it was amazing, you know, con- contrary to what people might think, you know, there was never a, a financial inducement, you know, and I, I know a lot of people think you're lying, but we're not, you know. I, I was never given money to, to, to come, uh, I happened to to meet somebody on that Irish tour when I when I was sick and I had this virus in my arm. I was in Johannesburg and ended up uh, going to a braai, a barbecue with somebody, and got chatting over several drinks on my dad, and and woke up in the morning with a, a bit of a hangover and this dream that I'd accepted a job in South Africa, uh, and then I realised it wasn't a dream. So I phoned Jenny and said, "Would you fancy it?" And my plan was very much to come for a year. Because I'd seen the, the stadiums, I, I, I'd looked at the provincial rugby setup, the club rugby setup, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, the rugby, rugby in Ireland in those days was, was, was very passionately followed. But apart from the internationals and the big schools games, you know, Leinster would play in front of a crowd of 5,000, a few thousand, whereas, you know, Wanderers Club in, in Johannesburg would play in front of the same sort of crowd, and Transvaal would play in front of 30, 40, 50,000 people. And and I thought I'll give it a go, so I came over with, with a lot of publicity, I might add, because um, uh, um, you know most most people were going the other way in those days in South Africa. Most people were fairly negative about the country, but once again, for me, it was very much a rugby decision. But I I, I thought I'm going to rugby is a very much part of my life. Uh, I've lost my job, meant to happen. I've been offered this job, and Joe, we'll get to go and have an adventure for a year. And we did, and it was 
extraordinary. I mean, the rugby was so tough. Uh, not, not the most skillful, with, with major uh, exceptions. Uh, and it was very much based on, on physicality and, and strength. And so here was me, this skinny little, little Irish guy whose game was based on cleverness and organization and tactics rather than that. And, and amazingly, I fitted in quite well and, and ended up playing for, for Transvaal. I did get injured uh, towards the end of the season and, and, and somebody else got in. So at the end of the year, you know, we were thinking about coming back, but, but it was fascinating, you know, the lifestyle for white people in South Africa, middle-class people, was, was unbelievable. I mean, it was just ridiculous. It was unbelievable. Something that I'd never experienced before. And bear in mind, I lived in Greystone, which was a lovely holiday, holiday time. The weather was absolutely fantastic. And, and uh, I thought, if I go home now, uh, and people can say, are you in the Transvaal team? Well, I didn't play a few games, but I didn't. And I was in, you know, it sounded the old story, coming back with the tail between the legs. And, and so I decided to give it a, another year. And the next year went even better. And then somebody asked the late Donnie Craven, who, you know, rules South African rugby with a rod of iron. It's Robbie Dyke. Can, can he play for the Springboks? And Craven said, if he's got a permanent residence, there's no reason he can't. Because in those days, amateur rugby said, if your job took you to a different country, you could play. And there are quite a few double internationals. And I thought to myself, you know, little John Robbie, uh, uh, Greystones, um, Timothy Greystone, Cambridge, whatever. Imagine if you had Ireland, British, and Irish Lions and Springboks. That would be something amazing. So we decided to give it another year, and and that led to five years, ten years, to you know, forty years, uh, and and that's the way it went. And and it was absolutely incredible. The the, the rugby experience I played with and against some of the greatest names, guys like Ray Mort, uh, Danny Herber, Nas Porter. Uh, these were, were, were teammates of mine, and I did make the Springbok squad. I was four times on the bench. And then in 1985, the All Blacks didn't come. I was, I was in the team to play against the All Blacks with Mars Burke at halfback. Uh, 85, and you imagine what a, what a series that would have been. And then they cancelled the tour. There was a legal uh, injunction taken, and the Springboks went on an internal tour, which was an absolute disaster. Players didn't want it. The fans didn't want it. And I played very badly in, in one game. Particular. But I did wear the Springbok jersey, and, and although I'm not a Springbok, so I'm a, a bit like Brian O'Driscoll's dad, who played for Ireland uh, against Argentina, but they didn't reward caps. So I think we'll form a, a club of the slightly disgruntled at, uh, at some stage. But I'm only joking, but uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a great second rugby career in, in South Africa, no, no doubt. And a lot of people have kind of said and have this strong sense of South African rugby as being incredibly tough. I mean, you mentioned there it was tough. Uh, and I often wonder, is it tougher than kind of rugby in the Northern Hemisphere? Is it actually that mean? I, th I, think, I think now it's slightly different because, of course, everybody is so well-conditioned and, and weights and everyone is big and strong. But, but, but for example, when, 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 I was, when I was at school in Ireland, and you played against a team. And I can remember playing against St. Michael and uh, Dara Koki playing, who was a brilliant, brilliant uh, fly half. And I played with him at, at various levels, including the Irish universities. And he was a very, very small little guy, but wonderfully skilled. He had this dummy, etc. And I remember that at that level, Ian Burns, who I played with, you, 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 the whole thing was, my goodness, look at that skill. Look at the skill. Look at the, look at the, the footwork. Look at the passing, whatever. In schools in South Africa, it's about look how tough that guy is. You know, kids would be trained to run into people, run over people. That's what they, that's what they really, really admire. I mean, if you think back to the last World Cup, 
South Africa, um, you know, in the final against England, they totally outmuscled them. They just smashed them. And this is an England team as well between the All Blacks in the semi-final. So at the heart of South African rugby, uh, I mean, even though at the professional level, I mean, everybody is multi-skilled now, you do have a certain hardness. I mean, you look at AJ Sander, who went from uh, Northern Transvaal, where he was told, you're basically not big enough. You know, you're not big enough. You'll never make it. They tried to turn him into a hooker. He went as a 22-year-old to Monster. And look at the way the guy plays. He's just an absolute team and has had a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, career. Again, Dialende in Central would be another. You know, ultimately, for everything else he possesses, it's hardness. Uh, and my goodness, I, I, I picked that up, you know. In the first, the first uh, uh, one of the first games I played, I remember getting my ear bitten. You know, somebody bit my ear just to feed my ear as a as a, as a reminder that uh, I was in the big league now. But luckily, I had top guys on my team as well, and on, on Johannesburg Wanderers. And uh, yeah, had a great great club time, a great club games in those days as well. And when you came back from a trip, you played two or three times our games. You came back, you had to play for your club, and my goodness, you were expected to perform for your club as well. And uh, yeah, happy days, happy days. Can I ask you, John, at what point did you get into uh, broadcasting? Because I know it wasn't, you, you didn't come from a broadcasting background. I think you worked in, in an engineering company uh, selling engineering equipment. Is that right in South Africa? Can you believe it? Stainless steel centrifugal pumps that were 15 times more expensive <laughs> than, the, the than the opposition. So anyway, I, I was involved in that. And, and then there was an amazing radio station over here called 702, uh, which was very, very irreverent. Then they sort of said, well, let's get some guest presenters in. So they said there was Robbie guys phoned in a few times, a uh, rugby player, and they phoned me, and I started doing early morning sports reports for them as a guest. So, I'd, I mean, it was, it was actually bizarre when you think about it. I was, I was getting up very early in the morning doing a sports report on 702. Then I had my day job with National Trading Company. And then I had my third job, which was rugby. I mean, three times a week we trained hard, and we were, we were semi-professional. So that, put it that way. We got money into our pocket. So I had basically, basically three jobs. And then 702 got good feedback and they asked me what I like to join permanently as sports editor. And I did. And, you know, I just felt this, this, this is what I want to do. I'm, I'm enjoying it. And, and I got involved in sports and I did a sports program on the weekend called um, Sports Talk, which funny enough still, still exists today in a different format on a Saturday where we we cover all the sports and have correspondence in stadiums and, uh, uh, speak to people, and and then we do a callback session. People who'd been to the game, got home, patrolling, and talk about the game, which in those days in South Africa was considered radical. This is phoning in, not broadcasting. And so there's sort of banter and back and forth and having a bit of fun, the same sort of stuff that, you know, you and I and every other Irish person does in the pub uh, every evening. Uh, and that sort of took off and became huge. And, and uh, then 702 decided because they were losing out to the better signal, that overnight they would go become a talk station. And at that stage, we're talking now sort of the late uh, 1980s, beginning of 1990, uh, I was beginning to get more uh, politically aware and aware that the country was, was, was coming to this massive decision. You know, was it going to go to a bloody civil war, a race war? And I mean, I mean something that would put, you know, uh, uh, Syria to, to, to shame, uh, Iran, Iraq, whatever. It was going to be horrible. Or was, was there going to be this opportunity? You know, and then, of course, uh, um, 702 were looking for people to fill these, and they said, well, we've got this rugby guy. Uh, let's, let's try and, uh, and talk radio. And so I got the graveyard shift, 10 o'clock in the evening, 
fantastically talking about issues that have never been spoken to. People were hearing each other from different parts of the country. I mean, it, it is amazing. For me, I was just having fun. It was great, great fun. And then a week later, F.W. de Klerk stood up on the 2nd of February 1990, and without even telling his cabinet, without even telling his wife, he suddenly announced that Mandela's coming out, everyone's being unbanned, we are going towards democracy. And there was this funny little radio station late in the evening, some 7.02, that sort of took and became very, very famous. And that sort of launched my, my, my radio career, and that was... Which 702 for 30 years, can you believe it? And just retired a couple of years ago. Because uh, I was going to ask you, just in terms of you were talking about, you know, your conflict, uh, internal conflict about going to South Africa and so on. Uh, and I know, like, by the, the mid-80s, it was a huge thing. And I was very aware of its state of emergency and all that kind of thing. I mean, was there a general sense amongst white South Africa at that point, you know, that the, that the game was up? Uh, were people fearful? Were people kind of wanting change? What was, what, what's your view on looking back on it? And, and also, I suppose, if there's a second question in this, at what point did you start to become sort of more politically aware and why? I think, I think white South Africans were, were amongst the stupidest people in the world. And I, 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 I'm going to say, I'm not saying that in an insulting way, and I know it's a huge insult, because I mean, they were brilliant people, you know, and fantastic, and, and look over the world from, you know, the Elon Musk and all these people who've done incredible, incredible things. But, but the whole system of apartheid kept people stupid. You know, it was, we are the state, there is this, this communist mass who happen to be black, mostly, who are waiting to take over the country and to make South Africa a satellite of Russia and to do it and, you know, we will keep you safe. We are the chosen people. That was the sort of viewpoint. And, and, and you know, white South Africans occupied most of them, not all of them, this incredible lifestyle, enjoyed this lifestyle, which was, which was absolutely crazy. Uh, black people lived over there, over the hill, and, and so on. And yes, the situation is not great, but they are after our, 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 our wealth of our country. So, so there was incredible fears amongst black South Africans, you know, that one by one, the countries, the colonial countries in Africa have fallen. And it must be said that most of the, the new governments ultimately did a very, very bad job. I and mean, that's something we can talk about later, what, what's gone wrong with the sort of the post-colonial uh, Africa. And there's, there's still a lot of debate about what was done and what, what should be done. But most White South Africans were absolutely terrified. Uh, black South Africans were, were ecstatic because the leaders, you know, I mean, the people, Nelson Mandela's picture wasn't allowed to be shown. No one knew what Nelson Mandela looked like. When he came out of jail, most people didn't recognize him. Who's the old man with the gray hair holding up his, his, his fist? Because the last pictures of him had been this chunky guy with curly hair and a great big, a great, great big beard. And that was why, in a way, when my little radio show started, and then within we started interviewing these, these, these uh, leaders who'd been in jail or in exile, who for most white South Africans were, were, were like the devil incarnate. They were like Satan. I mean, Joe Slovo, the, the leader of the Communist Party, um, came back to South Africa, and he was regarded as, as uh, you know, a Russian, a Ru an absolute Russian KGB is going to take over the country. And funnily enough, on my little late show, we, we gave him his first legal interview in 30 years. And we had, we had another guy called uh, Ray Schlaber, who'd just come off Robben Island. He'd been in Robben Island with Nelson Mandela. And uh, we did this, this, this show for two hours in the evening, 10 o'clock till midnight. 
And it was like the whole country was, was listening. I mean, it was, I, mean I get goosebumps now thinking about it. And here was this, this, this devil incarnate, this Satan, and he came across as this witty, this humorous, this intelligent, this, this you know, it was unbelievable. And, 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 and my little show, in a way, uh, because of I was learning as I went along. I mean, it, was, it was like a university of, 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 of life, of politics, of life, of, of social science, whatever you want to call it. And, and, and so many people, even today, years later, come up to me and say, my God, I hated you. Oh, I hated you. I wanted to kill you. But looking back now, in a funny way, my little program, our little program, I should say, because obviously producers, as you know, are very much a part of it. And, and it, it sort of got ready, people ready, that these people who are going to take over now are not the devils they've been portrayed as. And, and, and I think that the, the best thing that I've ever done in my life was that little program, because it was very tense at times, and, and, and I suppose looking back, very dangerous at times. But, but it prepared people uh, for, for the fact this momentous change was coming. And I think it also made people aware that, that this change for the economy and for uh, um, you know, society in general, if we don't take this God-given opportunity, there's going to be a bloody civil war in this country, and it'll never recover from that. And 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 my little my little show in a, in a, in a way uh, I think I think uh, play, played a part. I mean, but my hero is, is Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He's one of the loveliest men I've ever met, and we became quite quite friendly. And I remember after the show one day, he actually prayed with me. And I'm not a not a very religious person these days. And and prayed with me, and he said, John, you don't have a show, you have a mission. And and for me, that's the greatest compliment I've I've, I've, I've ever had. Yeah. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Um, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you that you were rattling a lot of cages. So you go from being kind of a a, a guy in a rugby bubble playing for the Transvaal and the Springboks, uh, who's got some kind of a conscience about what he's done, uh, and then that really sort of goes into a bit of overdrive when you're doing this political show and providing a platform for people, presumably who never had a platform before. So there must have been a lot of your contemporaries, guys you played rugby with in the establishment, who did not like you. Absolutely. I mean, I remember, I remember people would say to me, we loved you as a rugby player, but stay out of politics. And I would say, why? You know, why? Why, 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 can't, we, why can't we discuss this? Yeah, it, it was. And, you know, he was this, he was this uh, cocky little Irish guy, rugby player, who suddenly ends up 
pontificating and holding people to account and, you know, this, that, and the other, taking people on on the radio. And yet when I look back on it, the situation in South Africa was, was, was different and it needed an outsider. It needed somebody because the whole of, the whole of apartheid put people into pigeonholes. And, and that was it. If you were a black South African, this is what you were expected to be like. If you were a white South African, if you were African, Indian, colored, whatever. You know, people thought of you in terms of those pigeonholes. And I wasn't in a pigeonhole. I was white. I was a rugby player, but I had these views. They were communist on the air, you know, this, the other, and all sorts of stuff like that. And, and, and in a funny way, that's why my early career in particular, because after that, you know, I became part of the establishment. But my, 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 my early career, the reason I was able to do what I did, um, which was basically to, 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 to break the rules, and, and I was able to do it because I was an outsider. I was an outsider, and that was the, that was the uh, important thing. But a lot of people didn't like it, and, and uh, it was a very scary time. I think, I, think, I think for me, and I've said this before, there was um, a, a sort of cathartic element that I still harbored as guilt, as I've told you. Even in the early days when I was going on these tours, I think inside I knew one day you're going to be sorry about that. But hell, let's go on the tour and, and, and enjoy, the, enjoy the rugby. But for my wife and my kids, who were little at the time, it was very, very tough. I mean, it was anonymous phone calls. It was, you know, insults to the kids at school. It was death threats. It was all sorts of things that were, were very, very unpleasant. But, but in a funny sort of a way, you know, when you get the bit between the teeth, and, and I suppose you feel you're on a bit of a mission, as, as Desmond Tutu said to me, then I think it gives you a little, bit of, a little bit of courage. But looking back on it now, knowing what I know now, uh, my goodness, it was, it was tense at times. And isn't it true in the in the subsequent, uh, I think it was uh, Truth Commission and so on, that you met a, a man from the police called Eugene de Kock? I can barely bring myself to tell the story, but uh, would you would you would you be willing to tell the listeners what his plans were? Yeah, he was he was a guy, and I told the story recently. I did a hundred Telegraph article, and people have sort of picked up on it. Eugene de Kock, if you Google him, if you Google a guy called Prime Evil, was his nickname. And he was this secret policeman. He'd come out of the, 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 the Bush War uh, uh, in, in Angola, where the South Africans were, were in Angola fighting the, the Cubans and, and various people uh, for control of, of, of Southwest Africa. And so it was all part of the sort of the liberation struggle in a way. And, and uh, he, he, he fought the dirty war. He fought the, there was the war between the two armies and then there were the murders and the assassinations and the torture and all that sort of stuff. Dreadful, dreadful stuff. And, and he'd come back to South Africa and he'd been part of that. The, the police and the army both had these secret units that were based in farms and they did the dirty work. They assassinated ANC people who were coming in. Their they did horrible, horrible stuff that all came out in the, in the Truth Commission. And the Truth Commission is this amazing body that was set up to deal with the past. And they said, how do we deal with the past? And Desmond Tutu was the, the, the chairman of the, of, the, of the Truth Commission. And over years, ordinary people told stories of the most horrendous things that had happened. And, and it really, you know, there were so many tears, there was so much anger, etc. You know, you could argue that a lot of people, the other side of it was that, that if, if, if people came as witnesses and confessed what they had done, and if they showed remorse, and, and if they had acted with a political motive, they were given amnesty. And a lot of people didn't come, and a lot of people feel that, uh, that a lot of people still got away with it. But undoubtedly, it, it was an amazing, amazing institution. 
and, and, and something I know they talked about uh, in, in Ireland, the north of Ireland, to have that they decided they couldn't go down that route because it might open, you know, old wounds, etc. But in South Africa, the TRC, and I think the world looks at it as one of the great things South Africa did, but uh, Eugene de Kock went before the TRC and he gave full disclosure of the dreadful things he'd done and so on. But he'd, he'd actually killed a guy, a guy called Yapi Makonya, I'll never forget. He was a security guard and they were torturing him and Eugene de Kock killed him with a spade cut his head off with a spade, can you believe it? And that had been deemed not to be political, because Ponya was a security guard, not a, 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 a cadre of the, of the ANC or whatever. And so Eugene de Kock went to jail for 20 years. And, uh, you know, that was the last we heard of him, a picture of him, a fix-up guy with big glasses. And after 20 years, you know, we talk about where the time go. You know, two seconds later, 20 years have gone by, and Eugene de Kock has come up for parole. You know, he'd been put in jail for life, but there was a possibility of parole. He'd uh, apparently been a model prisoner, shown remorse, and had assisted all the families, etc., of, of people who died to find bodies. Because in African culture, having the body, the physical body, is very much a part of needed for, for closure. And um, so I was on the radio talking about this. It was a hot topic. I was now doing the morning show. And, uh, you know, I said, look, this Eugene de Kock guy seems to be the primeval, this terrible, terrible man, but... If you have rules and the parole rule has been, you know, the conditions have been kept, I believe you should come up for parole because that led to all sorts of, you know, it's a great radio topic, you know, a really serious radio topic. And John, you ended up actually meeting this man. You literally walked alongside Eugene de Kock. So we're walking along and suddenly realized he was laughing. And by the time we got to the table, he was, he was, he was almost crying with laughter. And I was getting a bit cross. So uh, um, Crowcamp says to him, Eugene, go on, tell us. So Eugene de Kock puts his face up to, right up to mine, I mean, literally six inches away. And I can see this man right in front of me. And he says, in the early 90s, I was told to assassinate you with a crossbow. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, that police, police guys came to me and said, this Robbie is talking about police brutality and all this sort of stuff. And uh, we want to send a message out. And, and, you know, that certainly concentrates the mind. As I say, it's like getting executed in the morning. It concentrates the mind. And, and uh, um, Cock, I said, did you, I, I said, did you kill me? He said, no. He says, I didn't kill people who I disagreed with. I killed people who I was told were carrying bombs. And I said, well, if you hadn't had that view, would I be dead? He said, absolutely. And I said, would you have killed me with a crossbow? He said, no, you'd have been a victim of crime. And then I asked him how many people he killed individually himself. And he told me between 180 and 200 people. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of scary. That was, that was a very dramatic thing. And in a, in a funny way, you know, I talked about the, the, the cathartic nature of, of, of what I was doing. Um, it made me feel good, you know, because if you hadn't stood up and, and, and made a point, if you hadn't offended the people who were hanging on to a party, then you weren't really doing your job. And, and you know, I, I wear that as a badge of, of pride, but it still gave me a hell of a fright, I can tell you guys. I'm sure it did. I don't know anybody who's been threatened with a crossbow ever. Can I ask you, John, you know, the post uh, sort of apartheid South Africa as it moved on from, from, from that momentous and incredible moment in 1990 with uh, Nelson Mandela and so on, what has, the, what has South Africa become now, do you think? Where does it stand? I think, I think it's, it's a great disappointment in many ways. You know, the initial years, the Mandela years were fabulous. But obviously there was a lot of, a, a lot of things that still had to be put right and, and so on. But, but there was just this. And then, of course, the, 
uh, winning the World Cup in 1995, the Rugby World Cup, and then the, also the, the soccer, the Cup of Nations, the African Cup of Nations, the next year. So it was almost like the gods were conspiring that everything was going to come right. And then, unfortunately, we've had uh, uh, the shadow of corruption, inefficiency, uh, just, just, it, it's coming. But the situation, the economy is in absolutely dire straits at the moment. You know, we're, we're, we're near what they call a fiscal cliff. Services don't work. You know, South Africa, even, even under apartheid and, and in the early years, had perhaps the best um, electricity supply company in the world, ESCOM. And now it can't keep the lights on in the country. And there's every day there are scandals coming forth. So very, very sad indeed. And, of course, the crooks, the people who replaced those, those early heroes uh, who, who went into politics to, to line their own pockets, they're now fighting back, not just to stay out of jail, but uh, not just to keep their jobs, but to stay out of jail. And we've got a horrible, horrible bunch of people. But still around the pause, I think slowly, very slowly, is getting things right. We have a big commission of inquiry into state capture, which is you know, nearing the end of its three-year uh, term, and we're expecting big things from that. But, but really, the economy is in a very, very bad state. And there's still idealistic arguments that should have been settled long ago between, you know, what you could broadly say are the left and the right and state-owned economy and, and private enterprise, etc. But, but um, for, all, for all that, you know, and I, I go back to what I said before, I think, remember it was headed towards a civil war. We're headed towards a bloody, bloody civil war. And, you know, you ask anyone in Rwanda who lived through that horrible genocide, you know, what it would have been like here. So South Africa is still a magnificent place. Still, I think, the, the, the loveliest people in the world. My kids who live in London now, you know, they're pursuing their own adventures. They said, I can't believe when they come back to South Africa, that people at the airport, the way they've greeted the friendliness of, of people. But, but I still think that the potential is there, the wealth of the country, the mineral wealth, the agricultural wealth, the tourism wealth, which, of course, has been hit so hard by COVID. Uh, we'll, see the, we'll see the country through. But when the COVID restrictions are lifted, is come and visit South Africa. Come and visit. You want to say, in the same way as you maybe gave money to anti-apartheid uh, movements in the past or boycott or whatever, the best thing you can do to help South Africa now is, is to come as a tourist when things open up. And I absolutely guarantee you'll have the best holiday of your life. You sound to me, John, like you're very much assimilated. Do you consider yourself to be South African more than Irish at this point? Yes. Yes, I do. Absolutely. And, and you know, the Irish people have, but, you know, I've, I've been here so long now. And, and it's not a, an intellectual decision. You know, you, you, you gradually realise that you're, 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 you're South African. And I became a citizen in 1994 because when I was sort of on the radio telling everyone what to do and they go, oh, it's all very well for you. You can run away to Ireland with your passport. And so I said, well, I'll become a citizen the day South Africa becomes a, a true democracy. And I did, and I've been a South African uh, uh, for a long time. But my wife, Jenny, just a couple of years ago, said to me one day, we were back in Ireland visiting my mum. My mum was 97 and still lives in Greystones. And, and it's in great form. And Jenny said to me the one day, you know, I realize I'm now South African. So she became a citizen a couple of years ago. So we're both, uh, um, how shall I put it, we're, we're, we're Irish South African rather than South African Irish people, if I can put it that way. Well, John, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And thank you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, you've obviously, you know, had an incredibly successful life in South Africa and you have kind of made a difference. But I do have one final question for you. And I was, you know, interested to, when I was doing the research for this, uh, and you were sort of saying that this is a, going to South Africa was a stain on your character. 
Do you do you still believe that? Yes, I think, I think so. Um, you know, I think that I think that it is, and I still have that feeling uh, of guilt and shame. But I think I'm also getting over it. I'm also getting over it, and I'm also thinking that you know, just maybe there was an element of faith involved. Because had I not gone on those tours, I wouldn't have had this incredible life and, and made this, this small uh, contribution. So it's still there, and I think it always will be. Well, John, uh, you're a very honest man and a uh, very interesting man, I have to say. I've, I've hugely enjoyed it. I'm sure the listeners have have too. Uh, and the only thing that I can uh, uh, end up by saying is um, thank you very much for, for everything that you've given us. And um, it was uh, it was wonderful talking to you. Well, it's a great pleasure. I'm highly honoured to, to, to be on this podcast. And uh, anyone uh, who's listening who still remembers me, very best wishes to anybody I've insulted or harmed wasn't intended. And, and please come out to South Africa and visit as soon as you can. I promise you, you'll have a fabulous time. Gary, great to chat to you. All the best, mate. All the best, John. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And that was John Robbie, the legendary John Robbie all the way from South Africa. Today's Senior Times podcast was recorded and produced by Mark Murphy and presented by me, Gary Cook.